You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. It is really nice to be here with you today. And with me, it's also very nice to have Lauren Fisher. Lauren, you know what? I don't even know what your title is. It's communication something, but she's an awesome part of our team. Lauren, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks, Chuck. I'm officially the communications associate. You're just my colleague is what I think of it. So communications associate. If you're getting emails from us, you're getting emails from Lauren. So this is the, the person you're used to seeing in your email, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and now you get to hear my voice. Yeah. Now you get to hear who she is. We're doing something new and it's it's new, old. We've done this in different ways in the past, but we've we've kind of been working up to doing a Q&A type format in our podcast what is this about, Lauren? Can we can we kind of start out with what the Action Lab is and, and how we got to this point and what we're going to do? And, and then we'll get into some of the questions. Sure thing, Chuck. So the Action Lab is like your ultra searchable reference center for the best, most actionable Strong Towns content of all time. It is where people should really be going when they're ready to take the next step to start taking action in their community. And this is why. Strong towns can't really tell you exactly what you need to do in order to build your community up. You, as a member of your community, are really in the best position. You are the best expert who is able to observe what's going on in your neighborhood or your city or your town or whatever is applicable. And identify where people are struggling and come up with solutions for those struggles. Where Action Lab comes in is we have handpicked all of the very, very best resources, all of the clearest, most actionable articles that we've ever published, and we've put them all in the same place. If you are a visual learner who likes to watch a video and see a face, We have taken some of the best webcasts that we've ever produced and put them all in the same place so that you can listen to Joe Minicozzi give you economics 101 for how to build a strong town, or you can see Chuck's face as he explains uh, what exactly the growth Ponzi scheme is. If you are somebody who likes to flip through a page, the Action Lab can't send you an actual book, but we have taken some of the eBooks that we have produced over time and put them all there so that you can find them. You can uh, find the Stuck in Park eBook, which will explain why parking minimums are destroying wealth creation opportunities in your community. You can print it out. You can flip through it with a cup of tea whenever works for you. And what I think is really amazing about the Action Lab is it's super searchable. So I don't have a database of all of the great articles and resources that Strong Towns has ever created. I think Chuck might and Daniel Harrigus. 
Um, it's funny because, I mean, we've been doing this for a dozen years now and there's thousands and thousands of articles and people will ask me questions about, you know, you said this at some point and I will have no recollection just because I've written, <laughs> I mean, I've written half a million words on this site. I don't remember everything. So if, if Chuck can't remember everything, then I certainly can. But I have people asking me questions uh, all the time, and I don't like just know the answer off the top of my head. I go to actionlab.strongtowns.org, and the search bar is the very, very first thing that you see on that page. And I just type in like incremental development. And uh, when I hit enter, I get a list of dozens of articles and videos and ebooks and all sorts of things that will uh, provide a resource for me about incremental development that I can send somebody else. And it works just the same way for anybody in the Strong Towns movement who is using it. It's fantastic. I know when we started down this path, we really wanted to solve that conundrum that I get all the time. And, and, and we, we all get this in our inboxes where someone has found Strong Towns they have a burning question. They will send me this, these very kind, very nice emails, but it'll be, you know, hi, Chuck. I just found the site. I'm really thrilled. I love this stuff. This is really helpful. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Four paragraphs later, it's here's the problem we're dealing with. Four paragraphs mm -hmm. later, it's what do you think I should do? And I've always had this existential guilt about this because if I took the time to actually understand what was going on and took the time to respond with the degree of passion and sincerity that the person sending it to me has, I would literally do nothing else and I would not even get through them all. And so we've always had this problem of how do we help people uh, get to the resources that they want and then be able to take that and do something without us being like full-time help desk people, which we just don't have like the capacity to do. So I feel like Action Lab is like our, our next step at getting there. And it feels like it's been very successful up to this point. Yeah, I think it definitely has been. And we're seeing like, we're seeing engagement on some of the community portions of that, people starting conversations about what's going on and uh, asking questions about how they can be doing a better job and all that good stuff. So with, without being impersonal, which is... I feel like this is the fine line we walk because I want to, I want to remain, you know, very accessible and very personable. But like I said, there's there's no possible way to do all this. We also recognize that we have this huge community of people who have lots of experience, lots of expertise. This is a bottom-up revolution, and the idea that one person, two people, you know, ten of us on staff have the answers for people is is just the antithesis of what we actually believe as an organization. And so we have created a community part of this where people can submit questions and we will do our best to do what? But Lauren, walk us through the, the Q&A part of this. So if you, if you scroll down on the Action Lab website, you'll find like a community portion. And we have three different boards here. But the one that we're really talking about today is questions for strong towns. So if your question isn't answered on the reading that you're doing on the Strong Towns website or somewhere else on the Action Lab, then this is the place where you can type it up and we will do our best to answer it. Or maybe a different member of the Strong Towns community is going to get there and answer it. There is a little bit of an upvote 
process. So if a lot of people are also struggling with the question that you are trying to tackle, they can upvote it and give it a higher priority, sort of like Reddit and various other websites. So you can go there and you can get your questions answered. Yeah, and we will now kind of monthly, or at least is that that's what we're thinking. We'll we'll see what the volume is here. We will try to regularly uh, pluck the the most requested question and answer them here on the podcast, and then we'll 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 put those answers in the in the community forum so people can get those and and access them directly. And then we are being helpful. Uh, we're also looking for the community kind of triage the most important questions, and then I can uh, live guilt free and not feel <laughs> like I'm ignoring everyone and not being uh, you know generous with my time. So does that sound like a good thing, Lauren? We're like on the same page? Yeah, I think we're we're heading in the right direction here. Okay, so you've got the first set of questions. You're going to ask these, and then I'm going to try to answer, and we're going to chat about it. Does that sound all right? Sure thing, and, and we'll try to get through like, you know, 30 or 40 of these a time. I'm I just kidding. <laughs> I think we've, we'll, we'll try to get through four or five, maybe. That would be really nice. I have four questions here today, so I think we'll be able to manage this just fine. All right, cool. First one that I have is, it's from Robbie, who is an intern in Bellevue, Washington, and he is working with a team of people to try and convince engineers in his area to lower the speed limit on residential streets from 25 miles per hour to 20 miles per hour. His first question of this two-part question is, should they try to implement this change incrementally going street by street, or is a switch from 25 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour better to do ubiquitously on all of the residential streets at the same time? If you didn't hear that, that was a deep sigh. (laughs) And that was a deep sigh because I think I have a a philosophical difference with a lot of advocates for lower speeds. And maybe we should probe that difference a little bit. There is a, a certain mindset that says, if we lower speeds, that things will be safer. And I've seen some studies that back that up, not lower speeds as in driving speeds, lower speed limits. So understand what a speed limit is. A speed limit is a law, essentially, that allows you to regulate the speed that people are driving. So if people exceed that speed, you then uh, have, have legal mechanisms to find them to do corrective action, to potentially lock them up, to to whatever. Um, to respond to speeding. That yeah. Is yeah. What, what speed limits do is they empower law enforcement to you know, actively pursue people who are driving above those limits. There's a lot of people who feel like if we lower speed limits, just like if we lower blood alcohol levels or if we lower you know, whatever uh, regulatory threshold, we empower the, the enforcement agents to be more aggressive under the theory that them being more aggressive will you know, result in actions that we want, people drinking less, people not using drugs, people driving slower. I think that relationship is tenuous, and I don't, I don't know as I necessarily agree with that, but that, that's a theory, and there are people who, who believe in that, and there's studies 
uh, that show that that happens. There's also studies that show that that doesn't happen. So, you know, go to the internet, pick your study. There's also a, a, a mindset. And I actually think this one has a little bit more credibility, but just slightly so that says that if we lower the speed limit, we're basically advertising to people that we want you to drive slower. And that, that, that the very fact of advertising of like suggesting, Hey, in this city, we're 25 or in this city, we're 20 will kind of raise awareness and let people know that you should drive slower. It's like a overall advertisement to me, that would have a bigger effect than the first, but I still am, am not convinced. One of the problems that we have in general with speeding is that driving, and I did a video about this before, maybe we can put this in this answer. Driving is this system one, system two kind of activity. Daniel Kahneman uh, wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It, it got into, in layman's terms, research that he had done with uh, Amos Tversky, where they looked at the way the human brain works and the way they process things in, in a system one or a system two. System one is the idea that I ask you, like, what is one plus one? And you don't have to think about or compute the answer. You just say two. It's not subconscious. Like um, you breathe. That's not a system one activity. That's a subconscious thing that you do. But the idea is like, how does your brain cognitively work? You don't have to think about putting one step in front of the other when you walk. You don't have to think about, you know, when you use your phone, turning it on. These are all system one activities that we don't have to devote a lot of brain power to. A system two activity is something that does take brain power. So if I ask you to add, you know, two numbers together that are four digit numbers, some people can do that really easily, but most people have to sit and think about it. Driving is a system one activity. The reason why you can listen to the radio while you drive, the reason why you can talk to someone in a passenger seat while you drive, the reason you can read billboards or you know, even read traffic signs is because driving is a system one activity. It's something you don't have to engage your brain real deeply in order to do. That offends some people who are safety advocates and traffic advocates because they think, well, people should have to engage their brain all the time. They should be hyper aware. They should be hyper vigilant. If you're driving a two ton vehicle that could kill somebody, it's, in, it's imperative on you to be constantly engaged and constantly vigilant. But the reality is that the human brain doesn't work that way. We, we can't sustain that. You look at people who drive automobiles in um, like a NASCAR situation, or you look at people who fly like fighter jets, the, the reason why those are such high skill activities that very few people can do is because you're basically engaging system two continuously in order to do those things. This is really strenuous. It, it's really draining. It's very difficult to do. And when you're doing your daily commute or you're driving your kids to school or whatever, you can't sustain system two for very long. So when you lower speed limits, you're not really doing anything to acknowledge the fact that most people will drive the speed that they feel comfortable. They don't put a lot of cognitive effort into figuring out you know, what the speed is and what I'm driving. They will drive a speed that they feel comfortable driving. If you look today, in most places where we have speeding problems, 
you either have one of two things going on. You either have everybody speeding. So, and by everybody, I mean like the vast majority of people will be going too fast. Right. Or you'll have a situation where every now and then there's a, what I would just call a deviant. So I, I'm not trying to denigrate people individually, but you'll have someone who deviates from the norm. So most people are driving 20 along this stretch and then someone comes along and just does 35. Speed limits, like the legal enforcement mechanism, does nothing to change either of those two behaviors. So if, if the speed limit is 30 and everybody drives 40 through a stretch, lowering that speed limit to 25 is not going to change the fact that people are comfortable driving 40 and all things being equal without a police officer out there or some other thing. There, most people are going to continue to drive 40, regardless of what you put the speed limit at. Likewise, if the speed limit is, is 30 and most people drive 30, um, but every now and then someone comes by driving 45, having the speed limit be 25 or 20 is not going to change that deviant behavior. They're still going to get that. And so it's important, I think, to recognize that what we actually need to do if we want to change driver behavior, both on the mean and on the deviant or the, the variation from the mean, what you want is you actually need to change the design. You actually need to make it so that it is difficult and uncomfortable for people to drive faster than what is a safe speed. To answer the question, should we do this incrementally or should we do this citywide? My answer on this would be incrementally. We should do this incrementally. We should go out and identify the, depending on the size of your community and the amount of resources you have and what have you, but I would identify the two places, five places, 10 places, 20 places, whatever it is that have the most uh, speeding deviation and also where you have the most concern from a safety standpoint. And I would work in those areas to iterate the design until you get the, the, the speeds, the median speeds that you want to get. So go out with cones and go out with paint and go out with, you know, flashers and, and whatever, straw bales, I, you know, and, and try different configurations until you get the speed down where it's going to work for you and then make that a permanent shift, a permanent change. Now, I'll just point out as a last item, it doesn't really matter at that point what your speed limit is. I mean, it does because you, you still want to be able to find the deviant and, and do whatever. But really, if the goal is to make the street safer, speed limits are not the way to do that. The way to do that is to get people actually driving the speed that you want them to drive. A lot of times people will say, well, Chuck, uh, you know, if the speed limit is still 40 on the street, that's not really helping us. Well, yeah, it is. Because if, if you design it to where it's uncomfortable to drive more than 20 miles an hour, no matter what you have the speed limit at, people are not going to drive more than 20 miles an hour because it's uncomfortable. So I've spoken for a long time here because I, I feel like this is, the question kind of oversimplifies a very complex issue. Does this make sense to you, Lauren? What, what, have, I, what have I missed or glossed over? It totally makes sense. And you can you can see it happening when you are in the car and actually driving. When you go from a, a road or a street that doesn't have a lot going on around you, it's that system one activity. You've got the radio up, you're yammering on at whoever's in the passenger seat. And then you go into a narrower street or there's uh, some sort of interference on either side of you, people on the road. Like, oh, if you've ever driven 
somewhere where roads are blocked off for a parade, you turn the music down, you ask whoever you're talking to to give you some silence so that you can slow down and navigate that safely. So I think that what you're saying, it really rings true to like people's actual life experiences. Yeah. Let me even take it a step further because I think if, if for the people listening, if you want to actually see this in action, take note of the way the person in the passenger seat will react to situations like this. So you'll be driving along and you'll pull into a parking lot and there'll be cars moving. You'll actually see if you take note of this is that your passenger will intuitively understand that you need to switch to system two and you need greater attention. And oftentimes, unless they're a teenager and are going to just keep talking like mine do, they'll stop talking and they'll give you that room and they don't have to be told. They'll just intuitively do it because they understand that you're not going to hear them anyway because your brain is active in doing these system two activities. The goal should not be lower the speed limit. The goal should be encourage people to drive more slowly through street design. There isn't much point in just lowering this, the speed limit in order to achieve that goal. Uh, now, you did talk a little bit about averages or means and deviations from those, from those averages. And it's my understanding that those, those numbers are kind of uh, baked into the process of determining speed limits for certain areas. Uh, and Robbie asked about that as well. That was part two of his question, which is, how do you convince engineers to move on from the 85th percentile speed? So my very first internship with the Minnesota Department of Transportation was doing traffic studies. And what you do is you go out with a radar gun and you sit in a spot. And when people drive by, you write how fast they're going. And then the speed limit is set at what is called the 85th percentile speed, which is the speed that 85% of traffic is driving below. So, you know, if you get a hundred cars that you record, you would go down and say, what, what speed is the 85th car driving in that, you know, in that chart and whatever that speed is, basically round up or down to the nearest five degree. You know, we don't set speeds at 42 miles an hour. We'll set at 40 or 45. So round it. And then that's what your speed is. It's, it's a, it's a very rough way to say, what are most people comfortable driving? And I think that's, you know, that's the important thing to grasp here is it's not like the engineers being dogmatic. I actually think the 85th percentile speed is a really intelligent way to do this. Cause what you're saying is, Given this design, this thing that's been built, what do people feel comfortable at driving? And you go out and you measure in the real world how fast people are driving. I think the, the, the problem becomes, and this gets a little bit to the question, and I think there's a misunderstanding by the question, and there's also a misunderstanding within the engineering profession. The, the question is misunderstanding that the engineer is actually clinging to 85th percentile speed as some affirmation of, of, you know, the, 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 the speed that people should be going or, you know, that, that, that somehow it's clear that the speed should be lower, but the engineer is saying, no, 85th percentile speed, I can't go below that because they're dogmatic. When the reality is that I, I think the engineering profession has a very good understanding that if you lower speeds artificially, you're actually going to make things more dangerous. In other words, if people feel comfortable driving 50 and you go out and put a 30, what's going to happen is a certain percentage of people will drive 50, a certain percentage will drive 30. And that difference in speed 
is going to create all kinds of mayhem, you know, rear end crashes, uh, all kinds of different misjudgments of turning movements and that kind of thing. So I, I think engineers are right to use the 85th percentile speed. I, I think where the engineering profession falls short, and this is where I would say, if you're going to lobby your engineer to do something or to, to change something, it should be the way they interpret the 85th percentile speed. Oftentimes, engineers will go out and the thing that won't change is the design. And the thing that will change is the speed limit. So they'll say, you know, we'll go out and do a speed study. And if the speed study says people are driving 45, then the speed limit becomes 45. And they will do that indiscriminate of whether 45 is a safe speed or not. We can look at a certain stretch of street and we can say, there's people here crossing on foot regularly. There's people here walking along sidewalks. There's businesses, there's residences. We can look at these environments and say, it is dangerous for anyone to drive over 20 miles an hour in this space because of the things that are in this space. And so if you go out and your 85th percentile speed is 40 miles an hour, what that should tell you is not what the engineers commonly do, which is raise the speed limit. It should say there's a 20 mile an hour gap between what we know is safe for this environment and what our design is actually signaling to drivers. And so we need to change that design to get the response from drivers that we want, which is a speed that is safe. That is a, a different mentality than engineers are taught on 85th percentile speed. And I think that that is one of those shifts in the profession that, that we're really trying to make at Strong Towns, that the book that's coming out you know, in a couple of weeks here, The Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, pushes on heavily. And, and I think people should be asking their engineers to do. Don't ignore 85th percentile speed. Demand that they change the design. Excellent. Awesome. Are you ready for our next. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like we, I took a little long with that one, but that was a, that's a complicated, it's interesting because I've written about this a number of times. And when I do, there's a certain subset of the audience that gets very angry and they get angry because they've dealt with engineers in real world situations. And I'm kind of talking theoretically and they're trying to make something work. You know, I just want people to drive slower. I think if we understand these underlying principles, you can get to that a little easier. The next question that we have is from John, uh, who works for a large-scale development firm. And this is, this is really interesting. He describes it as his burning question. He wants to know how he can personally, as somebody who works for a big developer who might be uh, predispositioned to investing in projects that go against some strong towns principles, how he can work to incorporate the ideals, the lessons and values of strong towns into the business model. How can he, as the quote unquote bad guy, also yeah, yeah. contribute to a, a positive change? This is really a tough, tough question because I get people who will call me up a lot and they'll say, I'm working at a job in an engineering firm or in a planning firm or for a city, and I don't like what I'm being asked to do. And, you know, what should I do? And there's a big part of my response that tries to let people off the hook intellectually, because none of us should feel like we have to die on every professional intellectual hill. 
you will not last long. You will flame out. You, you will not be a very good advocate. I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm on the city's parking committee. Uh, we advise the city council on parking issues. And I have to work on this committee with a neighbor of mine, uh, with a couple downtown business owners, with some guy who's an old curmudgeon who wants to like tear down the whole downtown and make it a parking lot. I have to work with all these people who have very different objectives and very different viewpoints than me. And while I'm fairly confident that, first of all, I know more about parking than any of them, I've thought about it more. I actually understand the depths and the nuance and all this. I also recognize that like, I have to work with these people in this community. I have to respect them. I have to acknowledge that they know more about other things than I do. And I have to allow that to be part of our conversation. And so I find a lot of times that I will make what I think is a good argument or a good presentation or, or a good explanation of my approach, I will get their respect, but I, they won't agree with me, right? And they'll want to do something different. And then I'm left with two options. I can either pitch a fit and get all mad and, you know, try to bully my way through and get it, get what I want, or I can find a way to respect what they're doing and, and, and work with them. I've actually found that I make way more progress, way more progress towards the things I want to do by doing the latter. And so when you're in a, a job where you're one cog in a machine and the machine is a machine going in a direction you don't want, I think you have a question to ask yourself, is there another place where I could go and do better work? And if not, if this is the best place for me right now, what can I learn and gain to improve my skills and my capacity? What can I do to not give up my beliefs and my values and, and, and bring those forward? And then what can I do to, in a sense, educate or uh, you know, intellectually infect the people around me with a different mindset? I think that that is a very honorable and pragmatic way to approach things. And I think that we're going to need that kind of thinking throughout all of our systems if there's going to be a, a change. There's no revolution that happens where people just take over things and kick the old mindset out. Every revolution happens because someone uh, knows something is kind of messed up. They can, by a trusted voice or someone who's close to them, see a different way of doing things. And then, you know, discover that on their own and, and move ahead with it. And I think we need people in tough places being that kind of nurturer that's going to bring people along. This all being said, I'm a bad example of this because I was maddened by the way things were being done. And I left, uh, went and started my own company and started doing it. And, and I'll tell you, I lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of time. I got uh, many years of frustration. And, uh, you know, got fired from a few places and, and had a very difficult run of it because it's not easy to be the, uh, the pioneer. The first one through the door is often the one who gets the sword in the, in, the, in the throat, right? I mean, that's just how it works. If that's your mindset, know that you're in for a tough road. If that's not your mindset, you've got to be like the really work on your interpersonal communication skills to try to nudge people along and bring them along and help them 
help them be the hero in the story that makes things better. Is that is that a fair way to answer that question, Lauren? Yeah, I I think it is a fair way, and and you did write a response to this as well. What oh, I, I did. <laughs> yeah, okay. you're answering the question you've already answered, but I think that this is a super important one to to do to this like larger audience because I think it's something that probably a lot of people who are interested in the Strong Towns movement are struggling with. Um, so what you wrote was try to build projects that are small, incremental, adaptable, and have good design to do your best and do your best to do the least amount of damage possible. And I thought that that was very like practical, applicable advice. I remember when Kevin Shepard was getting started and her, his, his business partner was Kristen Green and they were, um, Kristen Green, I'm sorry. They, they were uh, getting started with Verdunity and I was meeting with them in, in the early days because, you know, we we were both kind of uh, missionaries out looking for intellectual help and figuring this stuff out. And I was doing it in the nonprofit space and he was doing it in the for-profit consulting space. One of the big frustrations they had was like at this point, and I'll make up a number, I don't know exactly what it was, but at this point, you know, 70% of our firm is building strodes, but we need that work to pay the bills they were kind of looking for absolution for me. And I, I, I think I, you know, to the extent that I can give absolution on some of these things, I, I gave it to them. I said, like, look, you know, you're not out trying to find, trying to, you know, build more strodes. You're basically trying to pay the bills, but you're also trying to teach them and phase this out. And if you said, we're not going to do that work, there's not enough of the other work to actually make things go. We fast forward, you know, seven, eight years, Verdunity is not doing any strodes now. They've been very successful at uh, doing the type of, of work that they're doing. And they've actually inspired uh, other competitors who are like in the strode building business to change their business model, to try to get out of that and do other things that I think are more aligned with what a strong town's approach would be. If they would have been dogmatic from the beginning, like we're never going to, you know, we're never going to do any compromise on our principles. They would have been gone. They would never have gotten to the point where they got, you know. Right. So, so you yeah. might not be able to to do it all at once and do it with all of that rage that you might feel. But if you play the long game, the play long the game. long game. Yeah, Lauren, you've been here for a while now. I mean, don't you think Strong Towns is is the long game? I mean, aren't we? I, I kind of feel like that is a, a, a part of this. Is that you know, the momentum here is a long game kind of approach. So one of the, one of the things that we, that we say that I've read many times uh, since I did get on with Strong Towns was that we do need change, but that no community should experience big change all at once. So maybe that's something that could apply to this question is in, internally in your organization, you might have identified that a change necessary in order to be doing the kind of work that promotes to experience that kind of change all at once might be so destructive to your organization that you never get there. Let me throw a bone to the the real radicals too, because uh, this might sound like we're just you know trying to be big moderates and compromise and everything. <laughs> we're, we're not, we're absolute radicals. I think that this advice really is about building towards a phase shift. 
understand how a phase shift happens. A phase shift doesn't happen from everybody staying where they are and one like radical going out and, and doing something way different. What a phase shift happens is that when the center shifts slightly and you get the whole mass of people shifting 5%, 10%, and then all of a sudden you reach this place where the equilibrium is different and you get a complete phase shift where everybody kind of moves to one side. If you want an example of this intellectually, uh, the one that I think is, is the most recent and, and kind of the most interesting to me is, uh, well, maybe not the most recent now, but I, I think the idea of gay marriage. When, when George Bush ran for president in 2004, you, you had, or even 2000, you had people like Hillary Clinton saying marriage is between a man and a woman, period, that's it. You, you, you had like the broad consensus idea being you know, marriage would always be defined traditionally the way it has been for, for a long, long time. And the idea of it being different was kind of a marginal belief that a few people had, but it kind of like slightly infected many, many different places. And within two, three years, you had this, I think some people will point to the Supreme Court, but really the Supreme Court just affirmed what had happened in neighborhoods and, and, and cities across the country, there was a, a very radical phase shift where you went from something like 70% against to 70% for, really because the median shifted just slightly. I, I think that for people trying to make change, they should recognize that they're part of this broader movement and part of this conversation. Their job is not to carry all the water. Their job is not to be the one who makes everything change. Their job is to be part of a broader phase shift uh, and a broader set of uh, you know strategies, a broader momentum that I think will ultimately result in you know them locally being seen as visionaries or leaders, even if they're not able to in the short term kind of achieve that radical end thereafter. I feel like that got really big. <laughs> well, that's why that's why we do these things. I'm uh, <laughs> we're big thinkers, Lauren. Well, um, Claire submitted a question that is also kind of related to the idea of incrementalism. Uh, so we're going to just scale it way down with this next one. Great. Um, <laughs> she mentioned that in your first book, Strong Towns: The Bottom Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. You write about how code compliance requirements can be a really uh, sometimes insurmountable barrier to those who would want to reuse and redevelop older structures. You proposed that allowing small developers and entrepreneurs to come into compliance over time instead of all at once before they open their doors to the public would really help ease that and make it more likely that we can reuse the infrastructure, the great buildings that we already have, instead of tearing them down and replacing them with new ones. So Claire was seeking a more fleshed out picture of what this incremental approach might actually look like, uh, how it would be implemented. Yeah, I just got back from Rome and Venice and uh, nothing there complies with American building codes. And yet, you know, the city's there and, and people aren't dying in mass. There isn't chaos and, and anarchy. It seems to work. It, there has to be an acknowledgement that the rigid adherence to codes serves a master that is neither the community nor the disadvantaged. 
but really serves kind of a bureaucratic master more than anything else and, and, and all the things surrounding that. This is a tough one. I think that there is a grant request out there for someone to work on this. And I, I don't know as it's me. I don't know as it's Strong Towns. I feel like there's someone out there who needs to work on this and I would like to partner with them and work on it. But it's not the existing building building code, which I know is out there. It's a, it's a different process. And I've seen it done informally. Let me give you what I think this would ultimately look like if, if it became a formal process. Let's say we have a, an old building that someone wants to make use of. And we want to make use of it because the neighborhood needs the investment. It needs a business. It needs the opportunity. We want that building brought up to, to standard. The approach you're given today is that in order to make use of this building, you have to bring it up to the modern building code, which many, many times means tearing the whole building down and starting over. Or the economics of doing that doesn't make sense. And so the advice you'll get from your architect or whoever is that it'd just be easier to tear it down. I would like a process where instead of that, what you did is you you went to City Hall and you said, here's, here's the business I want to open up in here. I want to open a coffee shop. I want to open a retailer. I want to open a brewery. I want to open an office, whatever it is. And the building code official goes out and they do what, what I would just call like the, the preliminary view of this building. They're going to go through and they're going to see the, the joke that I made is, are there straw bales? with a gasoline drip on them with like electricity arcing over the top, you know? In other words, is there some, like you look at this and you're like, this is clearly dangerous. No one should be allowed in this building. And you identify what those are and you take care of those. Because if the roof is about to collapse or the floor is unstable, or there is like an electric thing that's about, you know, you can in a very cursory way, identify these things and address them because we don't want anybody in buildings that are you know, dangerous. Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. But if the outlets are spaced, you know, supposed to be 18 inches apart and they're 24 inches apart, if if the banister is supposed to have a four inch gap and it has a five inch gap, if the bathroom is not ADA compliant on day one, if there's not a sprinkler system, but the building's been there a hundred years and is not burned down. And, you know, there's certain things that I think we can step back and say, this would not be an urgent thing. It'd be a thing we want to do. We want to have ADA compliant bathrooms, right? But it's not an urgent thing that prohibits us from opening this. What I would do is I would say, here's a provisional license to open this building. I actually would go as far as putting like a sticker on the door saying, you know, hey, just so everybody knows, this place has not passed building code inspections. It doesn't necessarily meet all the building codes, but we gave them provisional start because there's nothing here that's like an imminent, urgent health threat. If you put that kind of a sticker on the door, I have a sister-in-law that would not go anywhere near that place. She's one of these people who's a little bit like skittish in life. And she'd be like, that, that freaks me out. I'm not going to go there. I have a brother on the other hand, who would be like, bring it on. Like, this sounds fun. This sounds <laughs> exotic. This sounds really cool. I want to go there. And so I think, you know, in a sense, you're giving people like a heads up, like, hey, if this is the kind of place for you, like this hasn't been vetted through everything, but you know, they got some stuff going on. And I think then you would kind of have self-selection in this initial phase. I would give that business six months, 
12 months. I, I, I don't know. I would give them a period of time to figure out their business. In other words, you're starting an office. You don't know if you're going to be successful or not. You don't know if this is going to work or not. You don't have $200,000 to put in a brand new sprinkler system before you can answer that preliminary question. Like, can I make a business run in this location? So give them some runway to go figure that out. Six months, 12 months, whatever it is. At the end of that runway, then we send the building inspector back out and we go through the whole building and we say, okay, these outlets are supposed to be 18 inches apart. They're 24 inches apart. That needs to be changed. This banister has to have a, a four inch gap. You've got a five inch gap that needs to change. This bathroom is not ADA compliant. It needs to be that it needs to change. And you go through and you create a list of the deficiencies and you rank them in terms of most urgent to least urgent. And what I would do then is I would say, okay, if you are in one of these provisional buildings, you have to put 2% of your revenue. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air, but what, you know, a, a small percent of your revenue every month needs to go into an escrow account. And as soon as the escrow account reached enough money to do number one on the list, you would do number one on the list. And as what soon as the, whatever it is, yeah. And, and as soon as you reached enough to do number two on the list, you would do number two on the list and, and on and on and on. And now the, the business owner, the person who is trying to make use of that space knows whether that investment is going to pay off in the long term, knows that they're not going to have financial ruin and devastation if they need to put in an ADA compliant elevator, for example. And, right. and the business just fails after they spent all of that money and time making that happen? Well, I would actually word it a little bit differently. I would say that as a community, we want the building to be up to code, right? Like I like I'm with I'm I'm with the overall goal that we want to get the building to code. Right. The question becomes what's the mechanism to get there? And right now, right now what we've said is the mechanism is before you can get started and have success, you have to bring it up to code. And what that means is that a whole bunch of people in our community are not going to be allowed to start a business because they can't meet that threshold. What I would say instead is we want your business to be successful and we want that success to be the mechanism that brings the building up to code. Right. So in the long term, we get somebody who didn't necessarily have millions of dollars and a lot of time to make it happen, they got to start the business that serves the community and it became the best possible business it could be and the best building it could be that could continue to generate wealth and prosperity for the community over right. the long term. Yeah. There's an adage that we've used in housing and I think it applies here. It's basically, we want people in a successful place, in a strong town, we want people to be able to start with nothing and end up with something. We want people to be able to start with limited means and by their own entrepreneurship, their own ingenuity, their own sweat equity, their own effort, be able to build that into something that, that has wealth and value. That really is the structural advantage of the traditional development system is that you could start very modestly and work your way up. Today in affluent America or you know, paper affluence, however you want to look at it. We have created all of these kind of very high bars of entry. If you want a house, you have to be able to get a 30-year mortgage. 
that, that was not the case. You know, even 50 years ago, you could get smaller houses, smaller mortgages, contract for deeds, other things that allowed you to get into properties and kind of build up your wealth. We swept all those away. And now if you want to participate in the system, you have to have a 30-year mortgage. And that means you have to have a nine to five job. And that means you have to have employment history and you have to have a credit score. And you have to have all these things to participate in society. If you want to start a business and you want to own a business, you either have to go into a building that some other wealthy person has brought up to code, or you have to acquire the wealth in order to bring another building up to code. We don't have what Jane Jacobs has described as these kind of places where people can get a start. I'm agreeing with the people who want ADA compliant bathrooms. I'm agreeing with the people who want buildings up to code. What we disagree on is the mechanism to get there. And I think that the regulatory mechanism of putting the burden on the startup has really disenfranchised a high percentage of the population that would otherwise be contributing a ton of vitality to our neighborhoods. Great. Maybe one more. I think we're kind of running out of time, so. Yeah, okay. So the last question then that we'll talk about today has to do with import replacement. Stephen wants to know, like we, we've talked about import replacement a little bit at Strong Towns. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to know if communities can't become completely self-sufficient, uh, then what is a reasonable expectation for an import replacement strategy? Well, let's start off at the front with saying that no community will be ever completely self-sufficient, right? Right. Like, I, I mean... You came to my house. I have Easter Island statues all over uh, my backyard. I kind of have an obsession with Easter Island. If you look at Easter Island, you would say self-sufficient. It is an island. What happened to Easter Island? Uh, they grew their population up to a certain point. They had a massive collapse. Uh, the people remaining became cannibals. Is a pretty ugly scene. You don't want to be self-sufficient. You want you want trade. You want activity. You you can help your you know, neighbors. They can help you. Uh, self-sufficiency so that, should never be the goal, right? So with that in mind, uh, can you just start us off by explaining what import replacement is? And then we can get to Stephen's question about like how we yeah. measure we've done it. Yeah. So the idea of import replacement, and, and if you go look this up on Google, you will see economists poo-pooing this. And, and, and there are people who say, well, this has been completely discredited because of Ricardo theory of exchange and all this stuff. I will grant that is an old idea, but I think that the age of it doesn't make it any less credible. The idea of import replacement is that if you are bringing something into your community that you could do yourself, uh, if you do it yourself, you actually keep that capital in instead of sending it out. So the easiest one to imagine is Right now, you import uh, food. If you can grow your own food, you replace that import with something locally grown. And so instead of taking that capital and paying someone outside of the community, instead of taking your effort to raise capital and then shipping that capital out, what you do is you allow that capital to move around within your own community. You keep it locally and you allow it to go to some other thing. Instead of paying for food, to an outside community, you pay for 
a car or you pay for a luxury good or you pay for something else um, or you know you pass that around the community more in in places particularly places that are struggling we talk about import replacement as being kind of the base economic strategy to start to build local wealth um, if you can I'll, I'll give another example that's easy to intellectualize if, if, if you can have it so that people in your community can own as a family one car instead of two, what you have done, because they can now walk or bike, what have you, what you've done is you've shifted, you've replaced the need for an import, an automobile, gasoline, insurance, all the things that come with a car that you don't create in your community. You've replaced that import with something you can do locally, which is use your own two feet or use a bike or what have you to get around. That, that savings, that capital can then be reallocated to something else. That's, That's really interesting. Like I have, I've never understood that part of import, import replacement where you're not just replacing the item, but rather you are filling the need for that item using local resources. That's yeah. an interesting Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it is it, it is really powerful because a lot of what we're struggling to do is you know you hear this how do we do more with less um, and and kind of everybody you know struggles with that well you you don't do more with less if you keep the same exact system and so import replacement is, is essentially asking a question you know what can we do here locally uh, that we're now importing I worked with a, a really really small town once of about three hundred and twenty. And they were struggling. Uh, they had an economic base that had been completely decimated. Everybody would drive to a city 45 miles away to get their groceries. And you know, the thing they wanted is they wanted a local grocery store. They wanted a lo- they wanted all these things locally, but they didn't have the, the the tax base or the population or the demand for it. And so, intellectually, I, I try to walk them through how to build that capacity. And we started with haircuts. And I said, okay, where do you all get your haircut? Well, we go to the, the city 45 miles away to get our haircut. And I'm like, why? You, you know, can nobody here cut hair? And the answer was, you know, no one could sustain a barbershop or a beautician's clinic or whatever because there just wasn't enough population. So any of them that opened up couldn't generate enough work to actually do it. And so it would close up real quickly. And so what happened was that people would make their one trip to the big city once a, you know, once a month or twice a month, and they would do everything. They would buy their groceries. They would get their haircut. They would go through this whole litany of things. So we started to document what those things were. And the one we kind of settled on was a haircut. I said, what if instead you had one person come, you don't have someone here who can cut hair, but maybe somewhere else, or maybe you can find someone here. And let's get them a chair at city hall and Monday is haircutting day in the city or Tuesday's haircutting day, or the second Tuesday of the month is haircutting, whatever. And we have that be the thing and we fill up their schedule. So like, they're not going to run a full-time thing here. They're going to come here and they're just going to do one day and they can do everybody's haircut of that one day. And they thought this was stupid. They're like, that's, that's a dumb idea. Like, why would we, why would we do that? And the answer was, it gives you one less reason to leave town. Is you one less reason to go. And because you have one less reason to go, then all of a sudden the local alternatives for other things become more valuable. 
how many of those things that you're now leaving the community for, how many of those things that you're now bringing into your community and shipping your money out and, and equate your money with your time and effort, you're spending your time and effort to acquire, how many of those things can you acquire in a local way? And once they started down that route, we found that there's just a huge number of things that they could easily do for themselves or find a way to do for themselves and keep that money and keep that capital local and start to build their capacity. The hope was ultimately it could build up to where enough people could see opportunity and future in this place and move there and they could get a grocery store. They could get some of these other things that they would like to have because they would have the money and the capital and the wealth to actually uh, justify those things. So in, in the answer that you gave to Stephen on the, on the Action Lab, you mentioned that comparative advantage comes into play here. So uh, the French import wine grapes from the United States uh, and they, make, they ship them over to France to make the wine or that North Sea cod are processed in China and then shipped to the United States. Um, and, and kind of like how communities can fight against those, those problems. So the economic theory, and it kind of goes really close with free trade, which um, I think if we went back to Chuck Marone 20 years ago, I was kind of a dogmatic free trader and I'm, I'm no longer a dogmatic free trader. I do think free trade is great. And I think we should, I think trading is good. But I think when you look through the lens of a community or you look through the lens of a local economy, free trade is not an end unto itself. It is a means to an end. And that end should be increasing your own wealth and prosperity and capacity. The theory of competitive advantage says, you know, if you do winemaking really well and I do cod fishing really well, you should do winemaking and I should do cod and we should just trade with each other. That works really well until you get to the point where you don't do anything well. I look at Brainerd, Minnesota, my hometown. What's our comparative advantage? We have a Walmart. We have a Costco. We have a Kohl's. We don't do anything here. Yeah, we have some lakes and people come up here and visit and there's a little tourism economy and we got some knickknack shops in the downtown. But what do we do? We really just exist. And we exist in this machine that, you know, pumps capital in and then sucks it out through the franchises and the big box stores and everything else. And it just circulates through the community you know, in and out as quickly as possible. The reality is, is that we could do a lot more for ourselves. And when that capital comes in, have it pass around the community more before it goes right back out. I'll go back to where I started with is local food. We have a restaurant now in town. We wouldn't have started three years ago. You ate there, Sage. It's a nice little restaurant. They have developed relationships with local farms around the community that do farm to table stuff. If you go to Sage, the food is great. It's competitively priced. They're a local owned business. They have, you know, pay their employees fairly well. I like everything about them. You can go, you can get good food. Like I said, it, you're not paying more than you pay other places. But Sage and Sage's business model also supports, in a way, about four different farms around the, the, the community. Now, they don't pay for the entirety of the farm. They buy some from a bunch of them. But what that's done is it makes it so that farms then also sell 
you know, they, they're not in the corporate farming business. They're selling their products locally as well. So my wife and I are, were, until we start our own garden, part of a CSA. One of these CSAs, we get every other week vegetables uh, that employs, you know, a bunch of different people working on that farm that are, again, all local. And uh, they also sell to Sage. And so basically what Sage has done with their business model is they've uh, replaced that import of Applebee's and, you know, McDonald's and what have you with a purely local alternative that in many ways is a superior product, but even if it weren't, uh, keeps all that capital local and has built local wealth and capacity. If we can do that over multiple dimensions, what we find is that it becomes easier to do other things. The more capacity we build here in our own community, uh, the more problems we can solve, the more uh, things we can do, the, the less dependent we are on others for our future health and success and prosperity. And I think that that, that addresses the second part of that question, which is how do you measure success in import replacement? Yeah, I, I think in a very short sense, you're just measuring success in terms of building local capacity. You should never think of it in terms of being totally self-sufficient. I think that's a, I think that is a bad idea and a bad notion. And if if we look at like dogmatic free trade, dogmatic self-sufficiency is like the the opposite of that. And I think both of those are bad intellectual approaches. I think what we should do is be moving from total dependency to something closer to self-sufficiency, knowing that along the way, we're just building our, our, our community capacity to do things for ourselves. And I think that, that John, who was with that development firm, and Stephen, who's asking about import replacement, they've both asked a similar, uh, they're getting at a, a similar thing, which is like, what's the end point? Like, how do we define success? And that's not, like that's not the strong town's approach. No. The strong town's approach is not you don't get to the strong town. You just continue to build the strong town and you get better. You make your firm a little bit more supportive of fiscally resilient development strategies. You make your community a little bit more self-reliant but not not going for complete self-sustenance. Right. You just working toward building that strong town. And that is how you do the strong towns approach. Yeah, I was going to give a religious metaphor, but let me let me just give a, a health metaphor. You know, we eat healthy and we exercise. And, you know, some of us like to read and some of us like to do music and some of us like to go to Rome and, and see fine art. And, you know, there, there's, there's things that we do for self-improvement and there's things we do along the way. And I, I think you ask, like, what's the goal? Like, what's the end goal? And I think the end goal is just to be better, right? Like just to improve capacity. I think we can look at communities of people in the same way. There is no end. Like you don't reach the finish line and say, now you're a strong town and it's done. Like just you know, put a, put a wrap on it, and, you know, walk away, you, you've accomplished something. It, it's a continuous process of re-engagement, re-energizing, renewal. It's a circular kind of thing as opposed to a linear thing. And I, I think if we look at it that way, we can see both import replacement and, and, and some of these incremental strategies as being just a way to get closer to a more ideal situation. Thank you so much, Chuck 
Hey, thank you. Questions. It was really fun to like get to have a little bit of a discussion about it. Well, on the staff, uh, as part of our team, you are the one who asks me the most like deep intellectual questions and are always challenging me on things. So when we came up with this idea of taking these from the action lab and doing this, I thought, well, it has to be Lauren because she's the most inquisitive one who always has the good question and always is <laughs> like, all right, explain this to me. <laughs> a lot so, of pressure for next time, I think. <laughs> no, so we'll do this again. Where, where can people uh, submit their questions? So you'll want to go to actionlab.strongtowns.org and go to the community section. And then you will find questions for Strong Towns. And if you put your question there, just write it out. I think you can even like attach pictures. Yeah, I think you can. Um, (laughs) So show us what's going on. And then we are going to look at the ones that get a lot of upvotes, the ones that are like really we think are, are going to help a lot of people out. And I hope that it'll help you out when you, when you go and add your question. Absolutely. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. We'll, we'll chat again very soon. Bye-bye. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.